hit me. From Studio P, Sausalito, home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. The number one comedy podcast about comedy... Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast commentator, Mark Hershon. Yes, I'm exactly who Bill Haywatt, our esteemed announcer, says I am, and that's Mark Hershon, host of this whole damn show. Welcome to Epi 41, a true succotash of succotash, because, well, we have a few comedy podcast clips, our stock in trade, but I also have a delightful interview with comedian Hal Sparks, where we get pretty deep into the essence of comedy and how he compares what he does and how he does it to other comedians. I'm going to be talking to Ethan Dettenmeyer, the host of Combat Radio, a show we've featured here a couple of times before. He's hosting Combat Radio's second annual Christmas breakfast for homeless children in Los Angeles on December 8th, so we'll get the lowdown on that special event in just a few minutes. First off, I want to let you know that if you're going to be doing some cyber Christmas shopping this year, you can put a little something in Succotash's stocking hung by the iPod with care. Just by making your way to Amazon.com using our link at SuccotashShow.com. Just click on over and scroll all the way down, then look for the Amazon carousel on the right-hand side of our page. You'll see some of the movies that, well, I've written for the Hallmark Channel that you can get on DVD. Also, my book, I Hate People, which is a great holiday gift idea. But you don't have to buy any of those things. Just click on the carousel, you will get over to Amazon. And when you order up your sleigh full of presents, we also get some coal and sticks from Amazon in return, which we will use to build a warming fire. If that's too commercial for you, you can still help us out by getting your friends, family, and loved ones not mutually exclusive sometimes, some cool Succotash merchandise by clicking on the Succotashery link. Shirts, mugs, sweatshirts, all kind of stuff with our stuff right there on it. And if that's too commercial for you, just click on the donate button and give us something. That'd be fantastic. All right, here's my chat with Sergeant at Arms at Combat Radio, Ethan Detmeyer. In fact, I just got off the Skype with him just a few minutes ago, so this interview is practically live. How are you? I'm okay, man. I'm a, it's a little animated around here, but I'm good. And it's actually a privilege to talk to you. I'm glad it's going down like this because I've actually wanted to thank you for some time for uh, just all the support you've given the show. Oh, it's very cool of you. Well, you know, ever since uh, I started talking to Phil Lairness about your show, I started listening and uh, just, you, I, I love what you're doing and uh, you? I want more people to know about it. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that, because usually when people say they're listening, um, that's where the conversation ends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard that combat radio thing, yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I've had the same that. problem. Well, your show is, um, i got to tell you, really well produced, especially compared to ours, which is just so, you know, show up on the day. I don't even know what we're going to talk about. People will say, like, sometimes celebrities a little bit, you know, inhibited will say, like, well, what, what's the subject going to be? And I'm like, fuck, when I know, you'll know. <laughs> you know? Well, you know what? They're so used to a pre-interview from, like, television shows and things like that that they're sort of out of their element when you go, oh, you know, we'll just kind of spitball and come up with something and uh, we'll yeah. get there. Yeah, no, you're right about that. They are kind of so used to the rehearsal process. And, you know, I've floored a few people because a lot of times I'm just, you know, 
excited to have a chance to talk to him. So I'm just like, hey, man, what's it like being so fucking awesome? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I've seen a few people kind of look around the room like, is this real? You know? Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> used, to do, I used to do a lot of uh, profile pieces for some comedy magazines back in the 80s. And uh, people would go, well, do you have any questions? I don't see in a notepad or anything. And I'd have a recorder, and I'd go, well, we'll just see where the conversation goes. And it's this art of conversation that uh, seems to be lost on a lot of people these days. Right, I agree with that. You know, the best compliment I ever got, and I've gotten it sort of paraphrased differently, but several times, is uh, my show at least is like uh, eavesdropping on a dinner conversation with famous people. That's good, and that's what people like. You know, they want to feel like a fly on the wall. They want to feel like they're, uh, you know, an inadvertent guest at the occasion. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to actually, I've talked about you quite a bit on our show. I mean, I've always tried to give thanks and credit where credit is due, and you certainly deserve it. And uh, this Friday will be no, no exception. So we got to make arrangements for you to call us, call in when we're broadcasting, so we can properly tout the succotash. Oh, well, that would be great. I'd love to. I'd love to. Yeah. Just uh, let's figure out a time and uh, be fantastic. Well, you know, the funny thing is I was talking earlier from my, from my daughter's soccer practice, and I hung up and I talked to a couple of the other dads, and they said, what? What book are you talking about? I said, this guy wrote a book called I Hate People. <laughs> or, or is that the title of it? What's that the is, title yes. Of? Yeah, it's called I Hate People. Uh, there's a and long you know, and boring subtitle that goes along with it, but uh, I can never remember what it is. Well, you know, as soon as I said that, everyone just started laughing, and you knew they were going to go Google it, you know? <laughs> you know. Anyone who writes a book called I Hate People, they've, they've automatically won over math audiences just for the title. <laughs> Brilliant move. Thank you. Thank you. It comes from the heart. It comes from the heart, man. Indeed, it does. You know, and I hate people, too. I just wasn't smart enough to write a book on it. See, a lot of people hate me because I beat them to the punch. Yeah, well, you know... Uh, I wouldn't know if hate's the word that fits where my feelings lie, but I'm, I resent you for getting there ahead of me. There you go. Well, uh, if I can get your address, as I said uh, earlier to you on the phone, I will send you a copy which you can auction off or keep or throw at someone. You know what? I'll, uh, I'll actually write that on the on the auction sheet. I would prefer, I would love my own copy, but given what we're, our challenges are here, charity-wise, I would, lo- I would love to auction it off and have someone kind of, I'd love for it to somehow take part in the in the economic effort to re- revive the homeless families in our area. Well, that'd be great. In fact, uh, let's get uh, into this a little deeper uh, and give you pre- your proper due. I'm talking to Ethan Dettenmeyer, who uh, I think I, I was calling you the Sergeant at Arms at uh, Combat Radio. Is that an appropriate title? Uh, that works. I mean, my nickname over at Warner Brothers was Staff Sergeant Barnes after like the psychotic little yeah. Tom Berenger played in Platoon. It's really... <laughs> was not meant as a compliment, but for some reason I could never quite shake it, and I don't know why that is. <laughs> you know, but, uh, yeah, so Sergeant of Arms, Staff Sergeant Barnes, Administrator of Goodwill, however you want to classify me, it's just a privilege to be part of Succotash. And you are administrating some goodwill. You've got your second annual Christmas breakfast for homeless children coming up. But why don't you right. tell us a little bit more about that? Well, this is actually a big deal. All... Uh, all humor and sarcasm aside, this is a, a brilliant opportunity for us and some of our celebrity contacts to co-host what is essentially Christmas morning for many homeless children. It's a private event. There are some tickets available for sales through civic leaders like the mayor's office we work with and uh, Warner Brothers, Disney Studios, Universal, different sort of collaborators. But for the most part, it's a private event because of the nature of the event. It's uh, essentially... 
Christmas morning for homeless children and their families. And what we do is, this year, Grammy-nominated artist Marcella Detroit of Shakespeare's sister, who co-wrote the song Lay Down Stafford with Eric Clapton and was part of his band and Bob Seger's band at the Entertainment. And the kids come in. It's a complete five-star brunch experience, as if you were at the Ritz-Carlton. And uh, they get a chance to meet some of the celebrities we work with, mix it up with them. We'll have a lot of Lucasfilm Star Wars characters there, as well as some of the Disney characters, and they get a performance, and then, of course, they get a chance to meet the man in charge, the fire department, via hook and ladder, deliver Santa Claus, and every kid gets a present. <laughs> so you can actually well, find great. out so more about Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 you're more important than I am. You go. <laughs> I was just going to say uh, that uh, this the second annual, so you did this the first time last year. Well, it was a life-changing experience for me, to be honest with you. When I did it last year, I did it, you know, my daughter's a bit of a Gandhi, something of a philanthropist, and she insisted, you know, I wanted to do a breakfast with Santa for her. And it only seemed right that we tried to factor in some kind of cause and made it beneficial. Every combat radio event, whether it's Robbie Krieger, The Doors, playing our Super Bowl party that we did with the San Diego Charger cheerleaders or some of our universal events, they've all been charity-driven. We've never done an event without benefiting some sort of community effort. And uh, so we, this was going to be no exception. When we put it together, we're like, well, it's for children, so let's try to get the homeless children, many of which are living in their cars and trying to find a safe place to park for the night. Let's, let's try to provide Christmas. And in tune, by bringing the community in, into this, try to find solutions and figure out ways and projects that get these people off the street, ultimately employed, and back into society. And the organization we work with called Family Promise are experts at that. That's what they do. They don't just feed the homeless, but their whole structure is to try to get the homeless housed, get them jobs, get them working. And that's why it's such a privilege to work with them. And the event also benefits Toys for Tots. I don't want to leave them out. Well, that sounds great. And I just, uh, I was watching the video from last year's that you've got up on the website, and it uh, doesn't uh, doesn't not bring a tear to my eye. I got to tell you, it's uh, just great watching you help all those kids, and they're having such a great time. Well, I can't even watch it either. I mean, I was there, and I, I really go right back to the moment. And a lot of us have that same problem. It's tough to relate to. You know, you think you can identify with an event like this or a project like this, but until you're actually there to provide kindness and a little heartwarming sincerity to people who need it and genuinely appreciate it, you don't, you haven't lived through it. And you don't, it's like, it was like I tell people, it was like a life-changing day for us last year. It was like we walked out of there. We didn't walk out of there till about 11, 30, 12 o'clock that night because everything after the event was about making the event better for this year. How do we do more tickets? And we wanted to take the event into the children's hospital and do something that way. So when we launched the new website, which is combatradionow.com, we thought the best thing to do is to kind of transmit the video, show what the cause is about, try to encourage people in other cities to do something similar that they're passionate about to make improvements but also to try to garnish help and get people involved so we can we can kind of expand on this because there's a lot of hurt out there. Well, that's great. And and tell people again, when is uh, the event happening? The event is December 8th. It's uh, at 8.30 in the morning. And it's, it's at Salt Creek Grill in Valencia, and they deserve a lot of credit because they have been the perfect partners for this. There has been no bureaucracy, no nonsense. Do you have a delay on this show? Can I talk like I normally speak, or do I have to watch my language? Absolutely. No, absolutely. Well, typically, you know, you get a lot of posturing and horseshit with something like this. You know, people are always trying to kind of 
figure an angle to, to profit on it. And since there is none, we basically pay for this out of pocket. We got the best possible partner in Salt Creek whose staff actually volunteers to work that day. That's you know, amazing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'll tell you, 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 you don't amount to much in this world unless you can give back in some way. You can't, you can't go day to day with your, your metaphorical handout, hoping things just happen for you. If you can't get involved and if you can't improve things, even the simplest thing in the world around you, you really don't have any right to walk this earth. And I don't mean like Kane and Kung Fu. If you're not going to get involved <laughs> and really try to do something significant, then, then really, what is your purpose? What is, you know, I mean, I know what Succotash's purpose is. That's a, that's a complete morale-boosting piece of propaganda that we all become dependent on because it's great radio. But what can the rest of us get? What can the rest of us do? What can you do? You know, that's my question, I guess. And I don't really think I do enough. I mean, I'm not standing on some metaphorical soapbox. There's a lot more I can be doing, and I'm trying to get more to, trying to increase my operational tempo to help more people. Well, that's great. And people can help out, even if they're not anywhere in the area, just by going yeah. up to CombatRadioNow.com. Yeah. And uh, click on that donate button. Yeah, you can do that. And you know what else I'd encourage people to do is, look, if you can donate, we're happy to have the help. But I would encourage people to, you know, find what they're interested in, find out how that can apply to a, a blueprint to improving things. And that, that would be the best thing. I mean, you don't need to hear it from me. I think most people know that this should be the human race protocol from now on, is just try to figure out ways to fashion art uh, into some 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 sort of, productive system for society. I mean, how do we make things better? You know what I want to raffle off instantly? I want to raffle off an opportunity for someone to co-host Succotash with you. Some some lucky <laughs> winner at the breakfast went to shot to Skype in and co-host Succotash. How about that? I'm happy to give the, uh, the airtime, absolutely. I mean, are you seriously considering? Because if not, I can just give away the epic book, I Hate People, written by someone you and I both know. <laughs> you can do both. <laughs> If it's for a if it's for a good cause, I'm happy to help out. Well, you let me know what you'd like to do. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm thrilled to have any help. And to be honest with you, it's a real privilege to be on this show because I've been a fan of it for a long time. Well, thanks, Ethan. I appreciate it. And uh, best of luck with the event. And uh, well, maybe we can do a call and follow up afterwards, and uh, you can give us a download. You know, I'd like that. I'd like to do something with you, if you, if you to prove it. I'd like to do something that's more us, more combat radio related. Right now, our frame of work is 100% charitable. And I understand for your listeners that that's not the most entertaining aspect to radio. I mean, it doesn't have the typical wittiness we'd like to offer. But maybe we can do something that's more based on how we really are and what we're about. But right now, it's all about charity. And I want to actually thank you for your time. You've been gracious to let me get on the show and, and talk a little bit about what we're doing. And that's, uh, that's big with us, man. My pleasure, Ethan. And uh, again, uh, happy holiday season and good luck with the event. Uh, happy holidays to you. Thank you. And uh, best to you, your family and your audience. Thank you. What a great cause. Click on over to combatradionow.com, And I dare you to try it, make it through that video from last year's event with a dry eye. And then click on the link and do what you can to help make a homeless child's Christmas happen this year. Thanks, Ethan. I've been seeing tweets by the Fireside Chronicles for a bit now, and lo and behold, a clip from that show in England arrived in our tweet sack this week. Hosted by Waggy, Maddie, and Phil, it's become the sort of flagship show for a little network of podcasts that includes Principa Hypothetica, 
the Bedside Chronicles, the Kalahari Chronicles, and the Ringside Chronicles. Here's what Maddie's note said. Quote, we are the Fireside Chronicles Network, a network of podcasts run by three friends, sort of, from little old England. This is a clip of our main show, the Fireside Chronicles, where we just eat sausage rolls loudly. It's usually more highbrow than this, honestly. Written media is the place for food reviews. Mm. Yes. We should start doing food reviews. You bought some food today. What was it? Go let get me, it. Let me go over and have some cheap Sainsbury's food. It was... No food is better than cheap Sainsbury's food. Six snack sausage rolls by Sainsbury's was 142, reduced to 34p. Oh, what a bargain. Let me try one. Have you already tried one? Yeah, I've had two. Thomas? Ah, oh, pass. Right. Fucking food snob over here. Yeah, I know. I went, yeah. I went for Phil's <gasps> opinion. Right. Hmm. What's the pastry like, Phil? The pastry? Hmm. It's a little bit um, bready, you know. Mm. Slightly too It's not crispy enough, I don't think. I don't think it's crispy enough. It doesn't know where it stands between flaky and short crust. We had a discussion the other day. I mean, you need, for a snack pastry, it's got to be thin. Light, mm. light mm. thin, mm. falling all over yourself. Yeah. I mean, a meal, short crust is fine, absolutely. Mm. Let me have another bite. <clears throat> the meat isn't the best quality. <laughs> you know, it's so cold. Yeah. It tastes so grainy. Yeah, it's like it's that grain meat, isn't it? Yeah, it's that grain. I think it's supposed to heat these up. Stodgy. Yeah. So I was watching the football. Mm-hmm. About watching the football, I mean, I was on my laptop in a room where football was on. There was an ad break, and the um, Halo Four live action commercial came on. It was yeah. really, really fucking good. Why? Yeah, why? How great of meat is, by the way. Yeah, it's not really meat, is it? How great. No. Oh, <laughs> you sausage rolls are not. Sorry, it's not crispy, but you're not impressing us. It looks like paste. Yeah, yeah. meat is like a. Yeah, just okay. paste, they've reconstituted it. Anus Anuses and lips. God almighty. Anuses and lips. Pig beaks. Oh, oh you just dropped from the floor. That's probably it's increased its. 47% pork, so not even half of it is actual meat. <laughs> Water, rusk, onion, potato starch, fat, yeast, salt, sugar, pepper. Oh, God. So it's flavoring. got potato in the meat, just to bulk it up. Yeah, to bulk it up. Good. Good. You can taste oh. it, it's sort of Yeah, starchy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to the advert. What so happened? I was watching the uh, <laughs> live action advert, and it blew my fucking cock off. Did it? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know why? Do you know why? What? All the amazing Halo in the advert? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, a lot of Halo. It was like Halo 3, right? But, but better, one more, one and more. With so much more live action. Mm. <laughs> like my cock was just all over the room. Why did you even have your cock out? I assume he always has his cock out when he's not with us. <laughs> Presenting, like he's an animal. <laughs> like a peacock. Well, yes, he's a sexual animal. Do you sometimes go up to women at weddings and just wave it around, not <laughs> say anything, just sort of flap it around? <laughs> Stop slapping your penis on my face! The effect is just drawing multiple colours and just spreads it like a peacock. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to buy Halo 4? I'm definitely going to buy Halo 4. Why? Well, yeah. Because I, I like Halo and it's Halo but a different Halo. It's new Halo. Is it a completely different story? Yeah. Or is it a continuation of the Protagonist. Series? Same protagonist but sort of... Master Chief. Master Chief. Master Chef. <laughs> is it Greg Wallace? <laughs> just... Laser guns. Oh, I love puddings. 
<laughs> I made you this blamange. No! <laughs> what is blamange, by the way? Blamange. <laughs> I've, no, like no, I've neither ever seen or eaten it. It's French for white food, isn't it? Is it like a gel- gelatinous pudding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm thoroughly pumped for Halo 4. It looks good. Good. I'll remember to buy you did a copy. Did a good job of setting up the premise of the game. Which yes. is? Which is Master Chief is stranded on a planet. Mm. He's only got five luxury items. (laughs) (laughs) You can get your Fireside Chronicles fix at tfcpodcast.com. See, that's the Fireside Chronicles podcast, but they've got initials, tfcpodcast.com. They are also on iTunes. Now, I want to give a shout out to a couple of members of the Pod Mafia, who I got to meet up with last weekend in San Francisco. Ed Wallach from Don't Quit Your Daycast was playing host to Destination Asphyxiations host Tom Beavis for Thanksgiving. Uh, He was up from Southern California visiting. We got a chance to hang out for a little while and catch up on all things podcasty and uh, plan the future world domination of the pod mafia. More on that later. Be sure to catch those shows. That's Don't Quit Your Daycast and Destination Asphyxiation. When you get a chance, I will have links up to those shows on my blog for this episode. So uh, be sure to listen. Over on Splitsider.com this week in uh, the This Week in Comedy podcast column, I'm reviewing Ratchet and the Geek. They've only put up their third show, but they already have over 10,000 downloads, so these guys must be connected. It's entertaining chat that uh, blends gadget talk with current events. Their home site calls it the intersection of social media, pop culture, and technology. Here they're talking about the PR nightmare of Rihanna's latest high-flying publicity tour. I have been so amused at the coverage that's been happening around Rihanna's 77 tour, 777 tour. Okay, what is that? And what is that for the people? What it is is um she's going on a 7-day, seven 7-city, seven seven-concert tour. And her and her organizers had the bright idea of bringing along 150 fans and journalists on a chartered flight. Wow. Um like an actual on, Boeing 777. Yes. Wow. With 150 people. To take around. How many of well, them are regular people? And how many of them are journalists? I think most of them were journalists. And the fa- the regular people won competitions or contests, mm-hmm. like for radio or whatever. Um, so in theory, this sounds like a good time. I Like a ratchet good time. Until day one, Rihanna comes on the plane mm-hmm. and is pouring champagne and making it rain bubbles. Okay. And they're like, yay, good times. And then they go to her concert. Of course, she's late because that's what she does. Right, probably lip syncing. Of course, lip syncing and yeah. dancing terribly. But yeah. they, they're they like, okay, cool. They hadn't seen Rihanna since then. And then on top of that, the Lux hotels they're supposed to be put up in didn't really happen much. A lot of times they slept in airports. And then like even just regular stuff, general stuff like food. One of the days for, for dinner, they had bananas and donuts. Oh, man. As a diabetic, but, I'm just trying to imagine myself <laughs> on this trip, trying to make it right. You would need to be, like, taken out on a stretcher. Because that would be like Con Air. All they've they, been yeah. doing is, like, debauchery to the point where the plane was, like, descending into madness for the past <laughs> two days. Is, and one of the, one of the journalists is an Australian dude. Yeah. Decided to streak on oh, the plane. No. 
mind you, these people haven't, they barely slept. Right. They barely bathed. They've been like going on a diet of sugar and alcohol and they're all stuck on this plane together. Can you just imagine the madness? This is like Lord of the Flies. That's exactly what I called it because I blogged about it. I'm like, this is going to turn to Lord of the Flies. <laughs> great minds, great minds. I got to read this post of yours. That's beautiful. Thankfully, the tour is over. They landed today. Uh-huh. Ten minutes before they landed, they finally see Rihanna again. And she's like, hey, guys. And they're all like blank stare. We're not amused. Where has she been? Partying with other celebrities. And yeah, no, that's about it. I'm over her. I'm sorry. I'm done. You know what? I honestly am, too. Really? I mean, the only thing she and I have in common anymore are giant foreheads. Okay, what did you guys have in common before? Giant, <laughs> giant, pretty much giant foreheads. Back, back in the, you know, pawn the forehead. Pawn the forehead? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the people on that plane, they even came up with a, they came up with a flyer that says, Missing Rihanna Fenty. And then it says on it, weight 90 pounds or so. Yeah. And then for hair color, they put blue, black, blonde, purple. You get the point. Yeah, they're passing out missing flyers. Hilarious. So, yeah, that was a complete utter fail. They have a very simple but slick home site at ratchetandthegeek.com. You can also get their show on iTunes, and they're also now on Stitcher Smart Radio, which, by the way, you can also find Succotash upon. Thereupon. We're, we're, We're on Stitcher. Uh, I made a random grab off of iTunes new and noteworthy this week to bring you a clip from their sibling rivalry podcast. I had not heard of this before. And, you know, you have to understand that new and noteworthy over on iTunes is a bit of a misnomer, especially when you consider that sibling rivalry. Well, this clip is from their 309th show. So while they may be noteworthy, I don't think they're new, but they are new to me and maybe they're new to you. So way to go, guys. 309 shows. That is something to be proud of. The show features Jeremy Grader from Seattle, along with Stacey Black from Everett, Washington, and Aaron Risto from Ithaca, New York. Aaron must have gotten a little too much tryptophan with his Thanksgiving turkey this year because he didn't make it to this particular episode. Uh, in addition to interviewing the very funny Jimmy Pardo on this show, here's a clip of Jeremy and Stacy talking about Christmas trees and, spoiler alert, whether Santa Claus is real. But now we're going, well, now it's Christmas and we have a daughter. Right. So now it's time for, for some sort of Christmas tree. And Cheryl keeps finding these really, like, nice things in, you know, in, in Real Simple magazine or whatever where there's some alternative or it's a, it's just the, the little wooden sticks in a pot with pictures of grandma and mommy and daddy. And I'm looking at it I'm like, it's not a fucking Christmas tree. No. You need a fucking Christmas tree. If you're going to do a Christmas tree, you have to do a Christmas tree. It doesn't tree. have to be real. Yeah. I don't, no. I don't, I don't want it to be real because then the cat will pee on it. <laughs> right. And nobody wants that. <laughs> no. So I'm fine with a plastic tree. But but we need something that resembles a real – I don't even need it to be, like, tall, even if it's, like, a little tabletop. No, sticks sticks in a vase, That's not, not, not a Christmas happen. tree. Or, or, and and yeah. last night she's telling me about the – well, there's this one where you can, you can get different-sized boxes and you can stack them up and paint it like a tree. No, it's not a fucking no. tree. No. And I realize that Maya is not even two years old and will not remember this Christmas, <laughs> other than the, the 8,000 photos Cheryl will take and put on Facebook. Yes. But – I, I grew up with a Christmas tree. I want her to have a Christmas tree. Right. Uh, and so I. So why I, did you get rid of your Christmas tree? I don't know. Oh. Well, and here's and here's here's the the side story here. I hate decorating the Christmas tree. I think I, I have a fake Christmas tree that I can give you. Oh really? Yeah. I might take it. Yes. Although you're, it's probably like 14 feet tall. 
Uh, and huge. Six? <clears throat> I'm not sure. Will, will I'll have you, to look. Will you store it for us uh, 330 days a year? Sure. I already <laughs> am. <laughs> you can borrow it for, you know, two weeks or whatever. <laughs> uh, but but I don't. Uh, and, and I think that as Maya gets older that I will enjoy the, the practice of putting up the tree and, and all this. I mean, even this this year on Friday. We're going to go to the, the for the second time. We're we're, make, we're making traditions. We're going to go to the Seattle Macy's uh, Thanksgiving day after Thanksgiving parade uh-huh. when when Santa comes to town. Uh, two years ago, I would have said no fucking way. Am I going to a parade in downtown oh, so Seattle? The, so you started the big lie right away. The the Santa the the Santa lie. Oh, of course, lie. of course, yeah. <laughs> You got to teach a kid about imagination. That is such a if you really stop and think about it, that is such a strange. It's like you tell your kids for you know the first good chunk of their childhood that this thing exists, this this wondrous Santa character that brings you (laughs) brings you everything your little heart could ever desire until one day some asshole on the school bus (laughs) tells you it's not true. How come? How come? uh, And then you have to go confirm it with your parents. (laughs) But here's here's what's weird about it, and I don't I don't want to get too like religious or political or whatever. But how come when when we go Santa Santa Santa, the kids all in, and then when you go no Santa, then they go oh well that was fun. We do the same thing with Jesus, 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 yeah. Jesus, Jesus, and then we go, oh no, Jesus, and then they go, no, uh, no, it's not what I heard. Why can't we get over that fairy tale? There's a Jesus. There's a Jesus and a Santa. That's what I choose to believe. You can catch more of those guys over at the Sibling Rivalry Podcast.blogspot.com. They are also on iTunes and on Stitcher. Uh, before I get into the interview, first of all, apologies to Hal Sparks. I recorded this chat with him, well, two months ago, backstage after his show at Yoshi's in San Francisco. He's a very funny comic, and it was a great show. I just kind of got backlogged with material for Succotash, so this was the first slot I could get this in. Uh, I really did enjoy my talk with him. You might know Hal from his five years on Showtime's Queer as Folk show, or the Lab Rats TV show. If you are a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, he became re-renowned this past baseball season because the team picked up the Zoltan hand gesture that he used in his role in the 2000 movie, Dude, Where's My Car? In fact, if you go up to HalSparks.com, there is a uh, YouTube video of him getting to throw out the first pitch and uh, assailing the crowd with the Zoltan hand gesture. You know, Hal's a bit of a rarity in the comedy community. He's in great shape. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. And he seems to have relentless energy. He had done two shows the night I saw him. It was after midnight, and I offered to catch up with him some other time. He insisted he was gung-ho to chat it up, and uh, he gave me a heck of a great interview. Here we go. Cool. Thanks for taking the time. appreciate it. I insist. Glad Uh, we got to do this. I am backstage at uh, Yoshi's with uh, Hal Sparks. Mm-hmm. Uh, great show. I realized uh, watching your show tonight, which was uh, very entertaining, very Thank funny, uh, that I have never seen you live. I've seen your stuff. Right. I've seen you on TV. I've seen stuff on YouTube. I've heard your your CDs. But um, considering, you know, I've been in comedy for over 30 years, booking, right. performing improv and stuff, but our paths have never crossed, Mm-mm. which is funny because we know a ton of people in common. Yep. Chris Bono, your opener. Right. Uh, we I like mean, to say feature act. Feature act. Yes. Uh, I've known Chris for 15 years. Right. And uh, so it's just kind of uh, funny that we've never crossed paths yeah. before. Um, I believe I actually mentioned you when I did a, a Huffington Post piece on um, 
the uh, comedy tour you were doing with Stephanie Miller. Right, Sexy Liberal, right. Sexy Liberal. And now you're involved doing another comedy <laughs> tour that seems somewhat the same. No, it's – it's the the Sexy Liberal tour is – really very much ripped from the headline stuff it is mm-hmm. it's specifically it has been about the um the arc of the election the primary cycle and then into the actual general election and so every week the set is very different i mean it really does change the politics sex and religion tour with john fugel saying is an opportunity to actually go deeper i'm a, i don't in my act normally talk about politics or very specific politics anyways obviously everything is relatable to politics sure. but the essence of what i'm talking about is actually based on sociological and cultural elements because i find that if you want to affect any kind of change ideologically theoretically culturally philosophically you're going to have to do it by cutting at the roots not the branches and a lot of you know temporary jokes pop culture jokes mm-hmm pop politics jokes don't actually solve the problem. And a lot of people are so nervous about the topics that they don't hear them anyways. You get applause but not laughter. And I and I think that's the antithesis of comedy sometimes in you know, modern yeah. day. Yeah. How long were you doing comedy before you started to realize, and maybe you've realized from the beginning, um, that your your comedy could actually be uh, an effective tool for, for getting messages across? I mean, some uh, comics spend their entire career and never seem to have a realization like that or care about that. <clears throat> Others seem very bent upon it. Right. Well, I was, you know, I was always a Carlin fan and and Lenny Bruce and Godfrey Cambridge and um, Shelley Berman and Woody Allen and I, you know, I grew up in Kentucky. I didn't have a TV, but my dad traded a mandolin for two crates of records. <laughs> really? When I was four years old. Really. Yeah, and the and both of the crates, half of them were comedy records. Literally, there was a line. Half was music, half was comedy. Oh wow! And it was uh, one was like the golden classics of comedy, and it was like radio chunks from Groucho Marx and and uh, Jack Benny and those mm-hmm. kind of things. And then there was you know uh, was it something I said and Hank's place and um, and you know, from Richard Pryor and Godfrey Cambridge and the Toledo window box and all these, you know, yeah. great things. And, and, um, any, uh, pig meat Markham or uh, red Fox, not really, you know, it's interesting. Mabley. No, there was a, there was a big, that was a big area. Whoever that guy was, he wasn't a fan, but he was a big, <laughs> he did like Godfrey Cambridge and he did like Richard Pryor, which was the more political arm yes. of that stuff anyways, which is yeah. very interesting, but that's what I grew up on. And most of the, my contemporaries grew up on stuff that was a decade later than that. Uh, if they knew Richard Pryor, they knew him from Live on the Sunset mm-hmm. Strip, and they they didn't know how related um, Delirious by Eddie Murphy was, and the and the the cookout story was very relatable to Hank's Place or Black Ben the Blacksmith or the old you know late '60s Richard Pryor stuff be- that is really a play, right? You know, it's characters and story. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to look at. And it. Th- I love that stuff so much. The so I guess I kind of knew right away that you could say something as long as you were getting laughs, you were allowed to say anything you wanted, hmm. and that's what appealed to me about comedy. And I actually, I I was lucky enough, you know, I think the two most important tools of being entertain in entertainment or or and and ultimately 
comedy especially is arrogance and stupidity. These in the beginning especially, before you actually have confidence Mm -hmm. and uh, a career, you need arrogance and stupidity. You have to be arrogant enough to think people will laugh at what you're going to say before you have ever had any empirical evidence to the contrary. (laughs) You know, you're – yeah, because you have to be able – to bullshit your way on stage, there is no middle ground of, you know, like, I, you know, I'm going to give this a shot. You have, I mean, it's incredibly arrogant to think that you're going to make people laugh if you haven't done it. Well, and you even, need a very distinct point of view on stage. Regardless of what that point of view is, it has to be distinct or the audience has nothing to home in on. Sure. I, you know, I, I have a chip on my shoulder about the point of view argument sometimes, though, because I think what people really mean by point of view is a branding element they can sell. And there's an argument where s- several of the greats over time, their point of view grew and articulated oh, differently sure. over and it shifted. Um, and that fluidity didn't harm their careers at all. Oh, yeah. No, no. I think you, yeah. do, you just need to have a point of view. And I'm yes. not saying it from a particular – this is the kind of – I'm a political comic or mm-hmm. whatever. But when the audience mm-hmm. is sitting there looking at you and watching you and listening to you – I think it just helps put a pin in a map about who you are and what they're well, listening you, yeah, to. Yeah, to, to not get too political about it and kind of in deference to our earlier conversation, you can't be the Mitt Romney of comics. You can't – it can't be obvious to the audience you are only saying things to make them laugh yes. because they will become hostile to the idea. Yeah. You can also not, which is what a lot of comics these days do, especially the New York and L.A. batches um, – Go about your comedy job as if you don't give a fuck at all about mm. what the audience thinks because it is completely unappealing. It's a lie because they know you're up there to get laughs, so they're hostile to the idea. And there are two things an audience hates I think the most, which is nervousness because they blame you for making them feel uncomfortable. Mm. If you're nervous on stage, it's not that they're they feel bad for you. They're pissed at you because – they're in a socially awkward situation of having to try to like someone who's nervous on stage, and they hate you for it. They hate you more than if you'd said something that actually offended. And the other is that they don't think you're there to make them laugh just to yell at them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's sort of the – I don't really need punchlines. I can just be weird or obtuse, and you just, guys can just suck it up. Uh, I, I enjoy the fact that you're very articulate about comedy, about the motivations of comedy – why comics do what they do or why they don't do what they should do. How did that develop? I mean, has that always been in you? Is it something that's happened because you've just observed a lot of comics and comedians? Where do you think that comes from? I think it comes from the fact that I had no relatives in the business and I had no uh, guaranteed opportunity. So I became a student of it because I figured I'd have to know a lot about it. Hmm. And I did not want overlap to be a part of my experience. I noticed... And it's hard not to do sometimes. You know, it's one thing to steal jokes and be obviously stealing jokes. But I see a lot of comics dealing with what would be effectively pop culture topics. And there's a guaranteed level of overlap just because their cultural experience is the same. If you're making NASCAR jokes and another guy's making NASCAR jokes, there's only a few ways you can go before you just go completely obtuse and off kilter and just make, uh, you know, random jokes about it. But if you're really going, okay, this is how most people see it, I'm either going to reflect that back at them or I'm going to reflect the exact opposite back at them. 
because that's oftentimes what's required. Yeah. Obviously, I'm, this is an oversimplification, sure. but it's the it's the mechanic of delivering a material. That if you if you go out, you know, I've been a touring comic since I was 17 years old. I've been doing this for 27 years now, and I have featured for guys who have been doing the same hour for 14 years. I've done it. I mean, I've I went through. I know I, those guys. Yeah, <laughs> and there is no reason why they could tour. You know why not? There are currently maybe three hundred touring comics who work pretty regularly, who are doing Louis C.K.'s act, mm-hmm. and Louis C.K. is one of those guys. The only difference in POV between him and them is he says "cunt." It's <laughs> a good point. But he is bitching about being a divorcee, getting fat, being over 40, feeling lame. Chicks aren't hitting on him the way they used to. He feels disgusting even trying. Every premise that Louis C.K. uses, every single one, is being used by 300 other touring comics. And it's not that they're stealing from him. And it's not that he's stealing from them. It's a very labored premise. That's it. Um, why don't they try harder? They don't have to. Okay. The, it, here's yeah. the thing. The human experience doesn't change all that much. The overlap is there because there's a lot of homogeny in this culture. And people don't want to hear about something outside their realm of experience very often. The, the, the narrow casting you're going to get caught doing if you're going to break outside that is fairly obvious to anybody who tries. Ask, ask Zach Galifianakis you know, before he was able to do things like The Hangover. You remember his pilot on VH1 mm-hmm. for a talk show? Yeah. Fucking hell. You know, the Comedians of Comedy tour started um, because those guys – sucked in comedy clubs they yeah. because the com- because the audience was not prepped to see something that was not spoon feeding them to some degree and so they you know Patton was the one who drugged the rest of those guys out because he recognized that they needed alternative venues because that's where the people were going and so the homogeny of the audience is is responsible for that kickback you know this and and these guys are not sellouts they're doing the business of comedy and it's okay they're allowed to do that, and occasionally those guys can actually slip in a more, uh, a little bit more social change than guys who do it for a living. Yeah, Mort Saul isn't changing anybody's mind because nobody's showing up to Mort Saul's sure. show that don't already believe what he has to say. For the most part, yeah. occasionally might drag somebody along that, that that thinks the opposite, but they're coming because they know he's a respected name and they they're going to come see a show. But it's these, you know, it's the guys who you you that catch you off guard. That actually can make you think differently, and I recognize that I, there was a moment. And this is kind of a to your point. There was, it, I did a joke. I won the funniest teenager in Chicago contest when I was seventeen years old, and one of the jokes I told was about growing up in Kentucky. And when I was a kid, one of the things uh, my job was to because I was short, I would walk along underneath the tobacco plants, pull off tobacco worms that would hide underneath the plants. Squeeze them with my hands and go, and just squish them. That was what you did. Okay. Killed them. You would um, also, uh, one of the other things you do is gather them in a bucket. Take the bucket into the house. My friend's mom would grind them in a blender, and they would spray them on the plants. 
and this was to deter other things. And like if you walked into a room oh, and your relatives were yeah. splattered all over the walls, <laughs> you wouldn't stick around. That was the premise, and it worked. <laughs> and that was one of my first jokes, uh, you know, that I that did about that. And and one of the things I threw in was uh, the reason we had to pull these things off was because they spread disease, and God forbid we have unhealthy tobacco, someone <laughs> might get sick. And that was I was seventeen when I did that joke, and it and it got a round of applause. It got a laugh, but it got more applause than laughter, and I valued it for that point. But I also recognized that the laugh was more important than the applause. Applause can be a part of a rolling laughter experience mm-hmm. in the physical act sure. of laughing. But I'm not a fan of getting rounds of applause as a comedian uh, just for the sake of those. I want you to laugh, and I want you to start clapping because you're falling backwards laughing and clapping that way. Right. Not because you agree with me. So during the Bush years, I'm doing kind of my standard fare. I started doing – I was doing stand-up in Chicago at the Clout Club before I was old enough to vote. And it was a political comedy club. And they were all cigar-chomping old fat white guys who looked like the cover of the Warren album, Dirty, Rotten, Filthy, Stinking Rich. Just gnarly hair and big cigars like they were out of a fucking Coen Brothers movie. And they would go, oh, this kid doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. And then at the end of my act, they'd go, actually, kid's got a point. And it was good. But the during the Bush years, I made some jokes that were right in line with the Reagan jokes I was making when I was a kid, but they were pointed and, and, and decent critiques. But what I noticed was, and this was kind of post-9-11, was the panic of mm. someone making fun of the president. So the minute I said the word Bush, no matter what I was talking about, even if they agreed with me, their ears would shut. It was like the doors on the Death Star. <laughs> Shunk. Couldn't listen to it. We can't. No, no, no. You're making fun of the. You're helping the enemy. Blah, blah, blah. You know. Yeah. And and I recognize I wasn't changing anything. Hmm. I wasn't as much as I want. And I think Bill Hicks saw this, and that's why he ended his life screaming. Hmm. His his last few years of stand up got more and more angry because he couldn't get through. Well, because he named names, and yeah. and there were certain people, <laughs> the very people he was trying to reach, didn't get it, and were and were angrily not getting it. And then the dumb people amongst them who didn't weren't interested in either direction were even more frustrating. So that the two thirds of the audience he was running into was killing him, and it probably, arguably, is what did it. Maybe so. Yeah, but I recognized that if I said Bush, nobody heard a fucking thing. But if I made fun of guys with cowboy hats that didn't have any cows. <laughs> You couldn't not know I was talking about Bush. Right. And the next time you saw him on TV and fucking pulling brush on his dumbass fake farm, you'd have to know I meant him. And you had already laughed at the premise, freely, fully, and relaxed. You had laughed at what I had said, which is, you know, the, the premise of the joke was, is it, you know, you like my new cowboy hat? Is it, do you have any cows? Nope. Then that's an asshole hat because cowboy is a job, not a style. And that was the root of the joke. And the next time you saw Bush in his fucking dumb cowboy hat, and the guy is afraid of cows. He's phobic. He was afraid of cows. He had no cows on the farm at all because they scared him. Leader of the free world scared of cows. Cows of all things. Not deers would have antlers. Fucking cows. But the next time you saw him, that thought could not not run through your head. So what I recognized is start chopping at the, at the roots if Christianity is the bully point, 
then don't undercut it from an ignorant point of view or a distant point of view. Undercut it from the inside. And I was a Christian Bible scholar when I was a kid. That was I grew up in an area where that was expected. Yeah, you I talked about church. that on yeah, stage talk, tonight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I know a lot about it. I know more about the Bible than almost anybody who can throw down with me. And even the scholars themselves have backed off the points where I would attack. The weak points, they all yeah. just kind of, you know, as Carlin used to say, well, it's a mystery. You know, ah, <laughs> oh, mystery. Gee, thanks, Father. That's great. A mystery. Wow, you thought that through. You know, um, which was a beautiful point, you know. Um, so I, what I recognized was that agency of change had to be covert. That comedy in and of itself is a covert method of change, not an overt method of yeah. change. And it is for some people. Some people can do that part of it. But I found that I can have more of an impact the less I seem to look at these things. I think it's an effective strategy. And I, one, of my, one of my good friends, uh, I'm sure you know Rick Overton, yeah. uh, is just – to me, to me, he's just too bombastic about a lot of his perspectives, mm-hmm. and it drives the audience into that closed mode. Right, you talk about, and he, but he's got an esoteric side that he could oh, deliver absolutely without ever touching on that stuff, and the point would still land absolutely. And and I think that's the key. That's the genius of it. When you can dan- when you can do that dance, when you can, and I can find myself on stage making people who would in a political discussion totally disagree with me laughing at every point i make and then the next time they're arguing their dumbass tea party angle with somebody they're gonna have to know that my thoughts are floating through their head and are undercutting the bs they're using the you know the three-legged table they're using as an argument so is there a harmony or counterpoint with the way that john fugelsang is couching what he's doing in your show right now when you work with him john is much more of a writer Mm mm-hmm than I am. I mean, I like, uh, I like that about him, and when and I believe in the Carlin aspect of crafting, and I do craft what I write, but I write more on stage. I I can write an hour in a weekend. Okay. I can I can write twenty minutes of new stuff that's gold and solid, and I can run on for a year in a weekend easily. I can write an hour that I'm totally comfortable with putting up against anybody's hour. Every weekend I'm out. How often do you suppose you sort of completely recycle through your act and have new stuff? Every quarter, at least. I mean, I like to build, I like to develop stuff, so I'll give it legs. I'll sure. give it time on stage. I don't just drop stuff if it doesn't succeed the second night or whatever. I'll start. I'll I'll build on it. That I'm telling a story right now that I wrote on stage. The driving, learning to drive storyline. Yeah. And that's an exercise that it's, it is 18 to 22 minutes long, this yeah. joke. And it's a joke. It's at its root. It's got a bunch of jokes peppered throughout. Yeah. It's a story. It's prose by any measure. But it's, a, it's got a punchline to the whole thing. That's right. So the protracted setup is just that. Even though it's, it shreds with jokes, it's got tons of stuff, lots of... You know, comedic diverticulitis, these little cul-de-sacs <laughs> where I can go off. But it, ultimately, it's just to punctuate an, a single annoyance in traffic. <laughs> Why don't people know that when that's you're making true. a left turn, pull out into the fucking street so all three of us can go on the light, you cocksucker. And that's all it is. And it's and, – and that's from an exercise I learned from Woody Allen. Hmm. From a recording where Woody Allen's being interviewed, and they said, what's your writing process like? Because you do a lot of stories and these kind of storied things. And he goes, actually, what I'll do is I'll start with a joke, a one-line joke. 
and then I'll get as far away from it as I can get and try to find my way there. And so he'll have a joke about, you know, uh, dressing up as a deer for a Halloween party or whatever, dressing up as That's a right. – so, yes. two people dressing up as yes. a horse, yes. which is where it started and then yes. it became a deer or a moose. <laughs> yes. And then he goes all the way back to I had my first apartment in Brooklyn in 1950, whatever. Yeah. That's where he starts. It's a great story. It's awesome. None of the triangulations attached to it have anything to do with where it ends up. And the whole joke is prefaced on the idea that he was annoyed by costumes where two people are one animal. <laughs> <laughs> and the disgusting nature right. of that very act. Just, and it, if you look at it in the abstract, it is fucking ridiculous that <laughs> one person has agreed to have their head up the other person's ass <laughs> all evening. And he doesn't yeah. necessarily go there, but that's yes. where he went. Yeah, That's where he started with. That's just stupid. I need to pick at that. And then the idea is, what if you had to fight with one? <laughs> yes. You run into a real one, and then he... So he dovetails way back and starts from scratch. So I made a distinct decision a little while ago to just give that a try as an exercise, just for myself, to keep it fresh, to always do it. Yeah. So, I, so I went, how far away can I get from that premise? Well, the first time you ever drove, you know, and how that happened. Mm-hmm. And it's a true story. Every element I tell in that is true. Every single side story, everything is true to the letter. It, Stand by all. It smacks of that as somebody in the audience. Again, I've never seen that joke before uh, or that story. So, yeah. But you get that feeling that this is truly coming from life experience. Yeah. And, um, and my dad and my mom, the second time I did that gag, it was in Kentucky a few weeks ago. And my dad and my mother were both at the show. Really? Yeah. And I do this. I'll do, whenever I do Kentucky, I'll, I'll perform in Kentucky at least uh, once or twice a year just so, to – placate them then they get two holidays and two shows <laughs> leave me the fuck alone and so they'll come to the show and and at, at one point in the show i will go do me a favor everybody quiet down quiet down for a second i just want you to do something clap if and only if you are my biological mother and you'll hear <laughs> and it gets a huge laugh because my real mom is there that's fantastic and then i'll go mom is everything i said in that whole story completely flawlessly true it should go it sure is <laughs> that's it and then, and then the next night my dad will come because they're divorced oh, I see. and uh, my next night my dad will come and he'll the, the you know the, that's so. pretty funny but the but and then i have a bit that i didn't do tonight but i do about sleep and i wrote it it was my first mercenary bit of writing which mm-hmm. is instead of naturally occurring something bugged me and then that flowers into a joke which is how most of my stuff is written something occurs to me in a flash and my comedic muscle that's been built over the years reflects on something I see, and then I, di- I dissect it, and then the one joke pops. Hmm. I either say it to somebody or it occurs to me in my head, and I write it down on a napkin or whatever. And then I build around that premise, or I build you know, on stage. I know I have that to get to. I know I have two comedic thoughts around the same general gist or idea, and I'll just puff it from there, and I'll trust my own instincts when I get on stage. And that writing will occur there. And what was 30 seconds of actual speaking time becomes probably a six-minute bit. And it'll happen in an evening. I can do it in one show. And then from that, I will go, okay, that's working. I'll keep it that way. If it doesn't, I'll, I'll try to shoehorn it for a while and see if it's just the audience or the energy of where it's in the set. But if it doesn't fit, I'll, I'll recraft it. And I'll go back to the original jokes and start from a completely different side. And that's, you know, because I don't get bullish on a material. I don't blame the audience if it doesn't work. 
Mm-hmm. It's my fault. It's my job. It, to me, and any comic who blames the audience is like a massage therapist who's going, I can't do anything. You're too tense. It's silly. <laughs> yes. it's, it's, asshole, it's your job to get rid of the tension. Right. I'm here, you know. So um, the sleep bit, though, I had noticed, and kind of going back to the overlap idea, I'd noticed I'd never seen anybody do a bit about sleep, a concise, well bit, well-written bit about sleep and the nature of sleep, and it's a third of our lives. Yeah. We spend a third of our lives sleeping, trying to sleep, and trying to get up, and nobody talks about it in comedy. And I was, I'd always liked, you know, Bill Cosby's bit about dentists is kind of my mechanic on writing a bit about an experience mm. everybody has so that we all get it. We've yes. all been there. Here's the beats. You all know it well, and I will just explain it to you in a clean and concise way, and I will pepper it with jokes. And I'd also always loved Larry Miller's Stages oh, of Alcohol. Best. The drink, yeah. The five Gen- stages of drunkenness. Yeah, Gene, yes. Yep. Such a great bit. And so in those two bits, you can see the seeds he of the He would sleep. call me, incidentally, because I used to run a comedy club in okay. Seattle, and he had started doing the bit when he played headline. Yeah. He just started. And he used to call me occasionally from around the country, and he'd say, because he always, he was trying to think of the right size that the devil should be when it shows up on your shoulder. Yeah. And he'd go, I thought about German Shepherd. How does that sound? Or he'd call and go, I'm thinking fire hydrant. Is fire hydrant the That's right? That's good. Fire hydrant's yeah. good. So yeah, that was yeah. just kind of, just watching the evolution of that mm-hmm. kind of a bit is just a sort of amazing I thing. never ask. I couldn't imagine asking somebody. That's I didn't crazy. ask. He yeah. was volunteering. No, I mean that, him. Yeah. I, don't, I can't imagine being him asking yes. somebody. Yeah, at yeah. All. no, he would just feel people out. Just, yeah, you know. it's fun. That's interesting. <laughs> but I, but I'd always, if you look at the sleep bit when I do it, it is a juxtaposition of Larry Miller's five stages of drunkenness and the dentist bit. Okay. In that I am designing this as you go through it, and I use the countdown of hours, how many hours you can't sleep, and you're doing everything right, and you can't fall asleep, and you get to the point where you just watch your alarm go off, and. You fall asleep, asleep three minutes before I go. Man, that's the whole story. It's the right. whole evening. And then I make the contrast that I do everything right, spend all night reading, watching TV, masturbating, or drinking chamomile tea or melatonin, can't sleep, but you put me behind the wheel of a car doing 90 miles an hour down a two-lane highway, zzz, and immediately fall asleep. Like, my body is the dumbest fucking machine ever because it's decided this is the great time to nap. And, 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 and then I have it talking to me in this you know, huggy bear voice going, come on, baby, you just need a little sleep. That's all. Just relax, you know. Those trucks will let you know if you get in their lane. You're driving in a straight line anyways, baby. Just blink a little longer. So, but that's, I'm having the opposite conversation with my body that it had with me the other night. So, that bit was mercenary. I, in a very Carlin way, and Carlin was a mercenary when he wrote. He would take a topic and go, this is a generalized topic that everybody fucking deals with. Paper clips. Everybody's got paper clips. He'd look at his desk and just say, "Here's the paper. I'm gonna write a. I'm gonna write the paper clip bit. Yeah. I'm gonna write the last paper clip bit. This is if anybody does a bit about paper clips, it's gonna go through my prison. If anybody wants to talk about religion, arguably, you you are up against the greatest bullshit story ever told. The Carlin bit about the invisible man in the sky who yeah. will t- you know that whole bit. That's it. If you're gonna write a bit about going to the dentist. Sorry, but it's got to go through Bill Cosby. Right. And so I write some bits now where I try to be the last word Hmm. on the bit. That's the only thing that matters in defining a bit. Some stuff is just to build the act and naturalistic and all that stuff. But there are certain areas where I'm like, I want to be the guy. Like the pussy versus balls joke that I do that's Mm -hmm. in Charmageddon. 
um, there's a couple of guys who've skated that around, and somebody and one of the SNL writers apparently lifted it and gave it to Betty oh, White in that one you oh. know bit that floated around as well. But the nice thing is, I had already done it, mm-hmm. and I'd already put it on a special, and and I'd written it in such a well worded, well designed way that I had peeked it out. Like there's no, I don't think there's a better way of concisely putting that thought across. And I, I was the first to run in there with it. I, you know, somebody may have floated it in their head someplace, or maybe one person said it in an open mic in Alabama at some point. But insofar as I know, that was it. I'm the only guy who came up with that bit, and I started selling it, and that was important to me. And so the, the stronger of the two, which is the name of the bit, is has been passed along more than any clip of me. Hmm doing stand-up and the re and and i learned a very valuable lesson from that which was write the last bit if you're going to write a bit about nascar you should write the bit where anybody who wants to talk about nascar they have to go is your sparks's bit on nascar fucking hell it's really good be, yeah be, be the definitive be voice. the one yeah and and that's what matters to me now as a writer that's as a comedian that's that when i come up with bits i'm trying to write stuff that is so well constructed and so amazing that even if the same joke had occurred to you, you can't beat that phrasing of it. And mm-hmm. I may be successful or not sometimes, but the goal is that, and it should be. I think the goal. Should, I think that should be everybody's goal as a comic. You mentioned you you you'll jettison a bit if it's not working. Um, but do you are there bits where you really work and work and work at it, and it just isn't coming together in that way that it's got to be that last version of the bit and you just either you can't figure out why or you just kind of oh i can always figure out why and and i jettison the premise i won't jettison the bit Mm -hmm. it just may not be born yet you know it's kind of like asking a you know a fetus to ice skate (laughs) it's not the baby's fault (laughs) just doesn't have any bones right exactly it's all cartilage and shit (laughs) thanks brother appreciate it um i will yeah I'll, i'll jettison the the structure around it. Right. The premise that makes it funny, I'll keep. And I may just bury. I'll just go, you know what? I'm going to come back to that later. Re-engineer it. Put it I in had something a bit, else. I had a bit about the date rape drug, which I put in Charmageddon, which originally I, I had the punchline come at the end because I was trusting the audience too much. And, and what salvaged the bit was I moved the punchline to the front. Okay. The bit was... Um, yeah. Yeah. The bit was, um, I, you know, I, it's not the date rape drug. Uh, it's just the rape drug because you can't date someone who's unconscious. I'm not going to pay seven fifty for a meal she's going to have her head in. I'm not going to pay for a movie she's going to sleep through. <laughs> and the idea was it's ridiculous to call – A, it's not a – it's not Spanish fly. It's a sedative. They're unconscious. They're unable to remember. There's no datey part of it. And the the point is, once the raping starts, date's over. And, and, and it's a, it is on ethic a good joke to make about the date rape drug. Anybody who tries to defend themselves yes. by softening the fact that they raped someone with the idea that it was date rape. She kind of wanted it. It was kind of, we were in a wishy-washy. Fuck you. It's rape. And so I was making that premise. But by the fact that I had made the... But the, t- the date rape joke at the end and made the, you know, meal with her head in thing, it sounded like I was pro-date rape. <laughs> like I was complaining I couldn't do it. 
or that somebody was shitting on a method I used. <laughs> Even though there was no way you could think that from the ethic of all the other jokes I had told all evening. Yes. By the time we'd gotten there, for whatever reason, they were totally comfortable with the idea that, hey, maybe this guy would rape me if I was passed out. <laughs> and, and so I had to, what I did was, I took the punchline, and the fix was, move it to the front. Okay. With their date rapes coming around, there's no such thing as a date rape drug, because once the raping starts, the date's date over. over. And, and I start from that premise, what I was holding as the punchline was actually the thing that set the rest of it free. Uh, okay. And I got a laugh on every slice of what was the premise, which was at that point just lead up. And so sometimes you can do that. You just barrel in with the punchline, make it a one-liner, and then just roll off the rest of it and build the laugh from there. And how did it feel when you did that? I'm assuming you tried it and said, I'm not sure this is going to work, but it... Oh, how it's the- hostile to the notion. It pissed me off that they weren't getting it you know, from that structure. But ultimately... Tough shit. My job is to make them laugh. Laugh is the first job. Everything else is secondary. Your job is comedian. You're not a philosopher. You're not a beat poet. You're not a fucking, you know, freestyle rapper even. Laughter is your job. And as long as you can do laughter, you're allowed to do all the other shit. If you try to do the other shit without it, see how long your career lasts. So the easy thing is go for the laugh first. Always hold on to the laugh first. Don't go outside your ethic to create the laugh. Don't lie to yourself to make a laugh. But as long as you can make the laughs that match what you believe, then hit them. Hit them hard. Stack them. And then, you know, you can put in. I can talk. You'll notice there were a couple times in my act where I had a good minute and a half where I didn't have to get a laugh. And I knew it. I could explain something. I could talk about a scientific principle. And the reason I could is because I'd already gotten enough laughs, and they trusted me enough to know that a laugh was coming. Yeah, you had enough on account. Right, exactly. Yeah. you gotta have, you got to put laugh, laughter in the, in the bank. bank. Right. 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 Uh, well, in the few minutes we have left, where, um, where are you going to be for uh, the next couple months? I mean, don't need oh, – yeah. I'll, I'll put – you know, I can find dates, but uh, just sort of in general, where are you guys going to be? Well, we got uh, Sexy Liberal Seattle next week, and we've got uh, the Madison, Wisconsin. We're doing the Politics, Sex, and Religion Tour. Chris uh, Bono and I are doing a couple of colleges this fall and a couple other clubs. We're doing West Palm Beach, the improv there, and um, I'm kind of perpetually touring. Mm-hmm. So um, I have a really good calendar on my site because I've had to. Okay, so people just go to HalSparks.com. Yep, and then every, you know, and follow me on Twitter. And every Wednesday I'm on Stephanie Miller's show from 6 to 9 a.m. on on Current TV. Okay. I'm doing political comedy and commentary. And I have my own radio show on Saturdays on WCPT Radio in Chicago, which at the end of the month is actually moving to Sirius Satellite Radio. So it'll be a permanent fixture. All politics. I'm, we do a lot of joking around on it, but it's I'm a wonk, so I talk. If, if you want to know what's in the healthcare bill for real, I can tell you that kind of stuff. If you want to know what's in the you know the the defense authorization bill and those kind of things, I've read them. I've read Excellent. the Start Treaty. I've read those things, and that's I like doing that. It's part of my just you know, a weird side hobby. It's my Sherlock, you know, yeah. part of my personality. Well, it gives you it gives you. Uh, that authority that when you do a joke about it, it's coming from a place of intelligence mm-hmm. and not just sort of a snipe job based on uh, popular on, opinion. Right, exactly. And 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 I get that from Second City. I studied uh, improv at Second City at the same time I was starting to do stand-up when I was a kid. I went to Second City's teen program, and it's the same principle that they teach the adults there, which is, and this is the best thing I learned. There's all kinds of good things. I think it's the best acting school you can go to. If you want to learn to act, 
go take Second City because they'll teach you to be present, don't have an agenda, and stay in right. character, Absolutely. which is the only thing important about acting. Um, you'll remember your lines later. That's a skill you can build. But the one thing they taught me was always uh, imagine that your audience is more in- intelligent than you are. Hmm. Always that they're yeah. 20%. And, and there is, if you want to make a joke about something, you have to know 20% more about the topic than the audience does because that's where the surprise lays. And it can be deductive stuff that attaches why this thing is like that because comedy is largely analogous mm-hmm. thinking. Um, but you've got to know everything they know plus 20% more about it so that you can pull from it. Even if it's relationships, even if it's dealing with the president, if they've got a parent, a dad that's hard to talk to, you need to talk to your dad more to get why he's hard mm. to talk to. Yeah. You've got to be the canary in the coal mine of that relationship if you're going to make jokes so that people get, oh, yeah, I got a dad just like that. Because you know that dad character better than they know theirs. They know things they are that suspicious about. Yeah. So you want to go deeper into it no matter what. You've got to know more than they do. And if you don't, it'll annoy them. It will. And you won't get laughs. Exactly. And yeah. you'll have a middle-of-the-road career, which will probably make a decent living and you'll go away. And the world is full of those guys. Yeah. And guiles. There's men and women who both do that. Absolutely. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, no. Appreciate it. Great talking to you. Obviously love the sound of my own voice. (laughs) And this will be great. And uh, continued success with uh, the rest of, well, both your tours and your shows and everything else. Yeah. And and now I'm on a Disney show, which is the greatest release ever. You you know, it's funny when Saget gets off of, you know, full, full house or whatever, <laughs> yes, yes. and he needs to go off the deep end. Mine's almost the exact opposite. Oh, I talk about anything I want, say anything I want in my stand-up, yeah. never been curtailed, never been held back. And so it's nice to do some kids programming where I actually have to skill myself into a direction and rec- exercise some restraint. Hal has got to be one of the hardest working comedians in show business. To catch up with him, either on tour or on screen, click on over to his website, HalSparks.com, or follow him on Twitter, at HalSparks. You may have heard him mention uh, his feature act. I mentioned his feature act during the interview uh, at that San Francisco show. Chris Bono, whose Electro, Electric Bonoland podcast uh, and video cast I have featured before. I've got an interview with Chris that is uh, half done. We did, we did half of it when he was up in San Francisco with Hal. The other half we are going to do on, on Skype. Uh, so it's a bit of a weird interview because there'll be a two-month gap between uh, questions. Uh, That'll be coming up real soon. We are going to uh, lock up every 41 of Succotash now and throw away the key. That's all we got. No burst of durst this week because he was out of town and away from technology for Thanksgiving, but he will be back next time, and so will we, when our special guest host, who will be playing clips with me, will be that Chris Gore of the Pod Crash Podcast. Until next time, friends, please remember to pass that Succotash... You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants. And imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com or at Suckatash Show on iTunes. And even at Suckatash Show on your smartphone Stitcher app. 
Follow Suckatash on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Friend Suckatash on Facebook. Email us at marc at SuckatashShow.com or just pick up that phone and give Suckatash a ring at 1-818-921-7212. Suckatash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino at Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the succotash.